Hello, and welcome to the eTech Podcast with me, your host, Ryan Morn. I have been involved in the development of electrified vehicles and machines since 2005 as an engineer and a business leader. This podcast is the product of my passion for electric and autonomous vehicle technology. I'm here to share knowledge from some of the world's leading experts, as well as my own insights. Join me as we accelerate the transition to cleaner, safer and smarter vehicles and grow the industry around the world. So for today's episode, it gives me great pleasure to welcome Robert Rossi to the show. He's the SVP of Autonomous Systems at a, a fantastic company called Too Simple. Uh, welcome to the show, Robert. Thank you, Ryan. Great. And if we could start out by getting to know you a bit better, uh, if you could tell us about your background and where you're from, that would be fantastic. Okay, so um, I guess the first thing is uh, everybody somewhat is a context of the childhood and the environment that they came from. Uh, I grew up in Detroit in the city. I grew up at a time when the microprocessor, the image processor, uh, the very first uh, personal computers were being innovated. Uh, and in Detroit, uh, there was a big focus on applying the new microprocessor technology to automation and robotics. Okay, yeah. And this is in the, the 70, 1976, 1977 timeframe. I, at that time I got quite interested yeah. and I started molding my education, went to a different special high school called Cast Tech in Detroit. It's a, a very well-known high school with a rich history. And after going there, uh, in high school, I got hired by General Motors. Um, in high school? Yeah, in high school. <laughs> 16 years old. The day uh, I turned 16, I got hired by General Motors. And they asked me, where did I want to work? And I said, well, when I was a few years earlier, when I was 13, I went on a field trip to, to, to the tech center at General Motors in Warren, Michigan. And somebody showed me uh, a computer vision system, okay, analyzing parts on a conveyor belt. I was so fascinated that the group moved on and I lost them and I couldn't find the group that I was with. I was just fascinated by computer vision, okay? And so I, I think that was kind of the... This, the seed for me uh, was, I started in at my, my career at General Motors and the first assignment that I had was figuring out a way to inspect the quality of cars being built, especially the sheet metal assemblies in the car, uh, using lasers and image processing. Okay. Right. And that was in the, was that in the, in the 70s or the 80s? 1978, by 1978, 1979. So that's like, I mean, we think of those things. Pre, pre-PC, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of yeah. analog circuits. Yeah. And um, I mean, that, that would have been like super cutting edge at the time. Right. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, the sensor basically had to communicate analog uh, information back to like a mini computer. Okay. Yep. And do you know, analog to digital conversion and, and, you know, it was very expensive and it was very cutting edge for, you know, and what we were only focusing on the areas of the car mm -hmm. that were dangerous if they came apart, mm -hmm. like your seat back, yeah, the sheet metal assembly for the seat of the car, things like that. Yeah. I went to, uh, Michigan tech, uh, continuing on this co-op program with general motors. And, uh, after my second year. I had an idea to create a, a sensor where all the processing was done in the sensor. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I prototyped it and ended up starting a company, 
uh, at the age of 20. Wow. Uh, that was developing <laughs> laser inspection systems for for automotive uh, manufacturing, quality analysis <laughs> of automotive manufacturing. Wow. So that's, that's when I got my start. The year was 1982. I initially got exposed kind of academically to AI technology in 1979, and it was just a stroke of luck. I walked into a, a rare bookstore, and they had two paperback books from MIT kind of that were surveying the whole field, all of the technologies, natural language, computer vision, different kinds of things like this, a two-book series. And so um, the minute I made money, with the laser sensors, we started looking at the other aspects of, of uh, moving up the, the, the chain of processing, right? Doing statistical analysis and then diagnostic reasoning. Um, and that's when I, uh, I, I really jumped into AI, right? And, and started working. So around the 1983, 84 timeframe, I start working on symbolic artificial intelligence combined with statistical uh, analysis of signals. So at this point, I am literally gobsmacked. <laughs> what the heck? I think most people would think, I um, me particularly, that these things are like really new. You know, it's the, yeah. the current, it's the trend, it's on. But you yeah. were in the 80s working on AI and computer vision systems. Yeah, and adaptive control for welding, you know, the whole visual servoing for robotics. It was all going on, but it probably... General Motors at the time was a leader in manufacturing. It was one of the biggest manufacturing companies in the world at yeah. the time, right? And so, and the tech center was the center of innovation. I just got lucky uh, based on context, I think. Okay. <laughs> so, um, so my journey kind of kind of started there. Um, we had our ups and downs over the years. It was very successful for about six, seven years. Ross <laughs> Perot guy I ran for president came in and kind of wiped out that automation industry in Detroit when he sold his company to General Motors. Cool. And I, I, I went to work for a company called Inference Corporation, which was a founding company in symbolic artificial intelligence. I think it was the first commercial venture in, uh, in AI, right. uh, founded in Los Angeles um, uh, with a, a guy from <laughs> UC Irvine and uh, executive from uh, Hughes Aircraft. Um, so I went to come work there, and then uh, the whole thing with that early generation of expert systems type technology kind of was going on in the 80s, okay? And I jumped to another startup in Palo Alto called Neuron Data, okay? Yeah. And again, it was an expert system engine, a deployment architecture, and I would work on custom applications for large customers that would combine methods, statistical yeah. methods, um, the reasoning methods available in the engine, uh, different yeah. kinds of con con contributing yeah. elements of, of doing AI. Uh, so this, this was in the, the late 80s. I continued with that company through the 90s. I moved yeah. to Wall Street. I ended up working yeah. on uh, trading applications yeah. And some defense applications kind of kind of rotated between Washington D.C., New York City, Boston, uh, up and down the East Coast, uh, working for all kinds of things related to defense, to telecommunications, mm -hmm. to um, business applications, and especially Wall Street uh, mm -hmm. financial applications. You were saying um, talking about your engine just there. Like, what, what were these? Well, the, the thing was like an, uh, in, uh, in Wall Street, uh, we use Sun Microsystems, right? Uh, mm. uh, 
uh, computers, which were something between a mini computer and uh, it was a Unix workstation, we called them at the mm. time. Okay. We did work with neural nets at the time. Okay. So we were, we were processing time series data mm -hmm. on Wall Street. And there were, um, a lot of this was done on a regular PC with a add-in card that would do the matrix computations that you do on a GPU today. Mm -hmm. So that there, there were vendors selling expensive cards that were completely dedicated to doing matrix computations. So supporting matrix computations way back then. Yeah. And so, uh, and, and the, and the general thing was, is that you, you had a very mm -hmm. simple neural net. It, it literally had three layers and a very wide. Uh, center layer, but the computation was limited. And many times an experiment would take weeks to run before you got feedback cycles. So that was the real problem is your iteration cycle wasn't that good. And in the nineties, there was a big reset, uh, on the neural net stuff back to support vector machines and some other statistical based approaches to doing things that were a little bit more computationally tractable. And so we kind of had that winter, right. For, for neural nets almost for 15 years. Uh, starting in the early nineties and then going to the, the, the zeros in 1998, I decided to, to leave neurodata, which became blaze software and actually ended up going public in, uh, year two, year 2000, right before the dot-com crash. So oh, I, man. I formed a company that was basically working on what Siri and Cortana and, and the idea at the time, the bandwidth on the cell phone was very low. I had, I had the idea of a personal assistant, you know, that had all kinds of context about you. So it could resolve natural language queries using the context that it had, like it knew about your calendar and knew about what you were doing, different kinds of things like that. But the problem was, is that you did not have enough bandwidth to send, um, a compressed audio back to a service environment. Okay. So the innovation was speaker dependent, uh, phoneme recognition. Okay. That would be done in the phone and created a way to simulate vocal tract of the human, you know, the human vocal tract and parameterize it and develop an ad adaptive filter with the, with the job of extracting phonemes, uh, the fundamental, uh, speech artifacts that, that are under words. Okay. Out of the language, then processing that in a, a cloud infrastructure. That venture put a lot of my own money into it that, that came from the other, the previous ventures, the dot-com crash happened. Uh, kind of weathered through that, but then 9-11 happened and the door shut on almost everything. There was one vendor in speech called Nuance that was doing pretty good despite all of those conditions. But basically the venture capital door was closed. I, I became, I started looking for an acquirer or partner and ended up going to Microsoft. We, uh, we onboarded the technology, but had, uh, some resistance from other technologies there. I was at Microsoft for a couple of years before I got frustrated with that. And then, uh, I ended up being put in charge of the, <laughs> the media processing core team at Microsoft. Okay. <laughs> so that was all of the image video, <laughs> all of the compression technologies, DSP <laughs> technologies that are on the windows platform, Xbox, mobile devices, and, uh, kind of reference <laughs> architectures for the extended <laughs> ecosystem of people making making consumer electronics devices. Anyhow, that was an unbelievable experience. Micro Microsoft was a, was a really defining <laughs> thing because I learned an enormous amount <laughs> about managing large, complicated technology products. <laughs> Windows at the time was 50 million lines of code. 
We, yeah. we were a core team. So if you didn't do your job mm-hmm. right, the pipeline team, the media player team, the internet browser, right? All, all of these products uh, would have problems. So, so even though it wasn't like the, the risk that you have with an autonomous system, rolling out a update to a billion people was painful. And so you, you, you learn how to do really complicated things and deal with a massively complicated mm-hmm. architecture and learn how to incrementally evolve it. Okay. And then release, mm-hmm. re- do releases in a, in a predictable way. Um, yeah. and so that, that mm-hmm. was, a was an unbelievable experience for me when I was there, we started there, there's a tie in kind of to what we do today mm-hmm. and why I'm at too simple when I was there. We had developed a, a competitive technology mm-hmm. to shoe 64 called VC1, mm-hmm. okay? And it was a high-definition video uh, uh, coding mm-hmm. technology. And mm-hmm. we were after the royalties from optical media at the time, which would have been Blu-ray and uh, DVD, which was killed. And to do that, to win mm-hmm. that game, we wanted to build the best encoders yeah. for Hollywood movies. Yeah. And to do that, we began studying... Mm-hmm. How do you proportion yeah, the the uh, the distortion yeah. in the image, right? Where where mm-hmm. can you save bits and where can you where, where where do you need bits? Okay, and to do that, you had to understand human attention mm-hmm. and how it would interact with the media. Normally, mm-hmm. this was derivable because the carto- the um, videographer or the cameraman had intent in the way he was he was framing the scene, right? So we, we learned, we created technology and this was the, our first use of GPUs is before CUDA, um, where we were using shader languages for, for texture shaders, right? Which had all the linear algebra stuff on it to, to you, to do perform technologies, to, to analyze where the attention should be in, in these images and where to, to, to focus where, where the human viewing the, the, uh, the content would be focusing their eyes okay? wow. and then bear bury the distortion in areas they weren't paying attention to. Oh. That, that, that is an amazing tie-in to why I came to Too Simple, actually. That all tie-in. In 2009, I left, and I wanted to combine the knowledge that I learned at Microsoft with my previous passion for robotics. And the idea then, then was to create something called cloud robotics, where you could have a, a, a device like a lawnmower, like a riding lawnmower, and you say, okay, lot, riding lawnmower is only in use once a week, but a lot of people would prefer to have that time and go do something else on Saturday. Okay, right? But you're not going to put five thousand or ten thousand dollars worth of electronics in your lawnmower that's in use once a week, unless you're incredibly wealthy. Yeah. Okay. Right. So, and, and what if you could use the same framework to support many different functionalities, like the compute architecture could support your security cameras at night, but during the day could could uh, analyze the imagery and control your oven, okay, or control your your you know your robot uh, mowing the lawn mm-hmm. or your you know so you could use the same uh, as the same brain to inter- interface mm-hmm. to different robotic mm-hmm. devices that had sensors and actuators on mm-hmm. it and very little memory, okay, like yeah. uh, very very lost embedded electronics. So so we started working on that. Ended up creating some really amazing autonomous uh, robot demonstrations, mm-hmm. including. Uh, aerial drones uh, designed for agriculture mm-hmm. ran into a lot of mm-hmm. problems. I didn't realize the U.S. government mm-hmm. was not really happy about that formula of technology. And so 
ran into a lot of resistance. I ended up with a few years then fumbling. It's one of the things that entrepreneurs, you, you kind of have to time when the world is ready yeah. for the technology that, that you're in, right? Yeah. You, you can make a big mistake being too early, actually. Yep. It's it's a very, the sort of Goldilocks effect of uh, too early, too late, just right is... Right. Uh, yeah, you got, you, you, if I had to wind back and I, I was, I wish I would have somebody mentor me in timing, yeah. right? Of, of when you when you time a venture, the first one I hit right. I was the first time I raised money for a venture. I walked into venture capitalists and they said, "My stuff is one tenth the cost of the existing solutions that you've already funded. It's going to kill your businesses." Right? Yeah. So so, anyways, uh, fumbled around in the the twenty twenty ten to twenty fifteen. I worked in augmented reality. Did a couple other things. I worked for Boeing on the robots for manufacture of the carbon fiber aircraft. Um, and then around 2015, I went to work for this, this really interesting startup called Civil Maps. And Civil Maps was one of the first companies, they originally started doing maps for the rail system, okay? And vegetation and different kinds of things like that. But then they, the autonomous vehicle thing was catching on and they went into developing high def maps for autonomous driving. And, um, they were specifically focused on visual localization. How do you localize without a reliance on GPS, a GNSS uh, system? Yeah. Okay. And uh, doing that with yeah. LIDAR and a, a way of encoding a signature or a fingerprint of the environment. Oh, okay. So I, I worked with them for a short, short mm -hmm. while. Then I uh, moved on to an augmented reality venture, see, see through augmented reality. I also had to some stuff I did in optics. So I designed an interesting, uh, passive, uh, augmented reality, see-through augmented reality system. They used the phone as the entire engine rendering everything. Okay. You can see it on my LinkedIn page. <laughs> see, it's my proudest innovation actually, because it was a, it was a really crazy thing optically. Uh, so after that, uh, gosh, I can't, I can't remember all my positions I had couple robotic companies, uh, robotics companies, I, I, uh, spent short, short stints at, then I, uh, was hired by TomTom Tom in the Netherlands in Amsterdam. Okay. And, uh, to, to lead as senior vice president, their autonomous systems, uh, HD maps for autonomous vehicles for autonomous driving. So I worked there, but right when I got there, COVID broke out, uh, my, uh, fiance wasn't able to, to, to come. And, uh, we spent 18 months apart and finally I got, uh, tired of that. Yeah. And I started looking, come back to the United States. So. Right. Oh, so you actually relocated from the U S to the Netherlands. Yeah, I did. Oh, wow. Big move. Really big move. Yeah. That was, uh, that was probably the greatest period of uncertainty, uh, imaginable because right when I got there, COVID broke out and then you had no support from anybody and you didn't speak the language. All the communications was in Dutch. Yeah, it, it, it was a crazy time, but I'll never remember. I, I will never forget it because <laughs> I lived in probably the most air, interesting area of Amsterdam, but one of the nicest streets it was called the Paris of Amsterdam. Uh, and I got to spend a lot of time reading and studying uh, things that I didn't get the time to do in the normal life that, that I had. It was just, you know, so it was a, you know, almost a year and a half of a really deep immersion in, in futuristic things. So it was there that, um, somebody contacted me on LinkedIn 
And at first I didn't, uh, didn't respond to the, uh, recruiters kind of, uh, inquiry it was very vague about some company in the autonomous vehicle space. And I, I didn't pay attention to it. And about two weeks later, I saw something with an announcement between NVIDIA and this company called Too Simple. Yeah. And that's when I took, a little, a P, I, a, I took another peek at it. And then mm-hmm. I went into it and I took a look at, you know, the founder and what his background was. And, uh, you know, I liked the idea of the trucking space. I thought it was an easier mm-hmm. to accomplish problem. And so I called, I called the guy back and I said, if it's, if the company you, you sent the message about is too simple, I'm interested in talking to you about that one. And so things went really fast after a matter of days, I went through several interviews and, uh, over the weekend, everything. Right. And then the following week I, I joined, uh, I joined too simple. I guess that could lead us into a little bit of the background of too simple. Yeah. It'd be great to, um, to sort of know more about the company and uh and and what they do and and sort of uh, how that came into being for, for people that haven't uh come across them before so i think i think if you really wind back with too simple you have to start with our our founder Audi Howe, and you you have to wind back to probably 2008 okay when he was studying what to do with his thesis and from my conversations with him, he was inspired by uh, a guy that was one of the four founders of artificial intelligence, uh, Herbert Simon. And um, uh, Herbert Simon was both somebody who studied um, operations, research, and economics, okay, and then artificial intelligence. He was kind of unique in this combination. We were very knowledgeable of him. Uh, the oldest book I have on AI is called Human Problem Solving, which was written in 1972. And so he's he's a very famous guy. And um, he basically had a communications on something called the attention economy. And he basically said, you know, the fundamental task of intelligence is, is filtering the massive amount of information that you're presented with. So the human brain only uses 12 watts. Only 10% of it max is active at any one point in time. Okay. Right. And we are faced, especially driving a car at 65, 75 miles an hour, you are consuming a massive amount of inner information. Yeah. Okay. Potentially for all the sensors that you have. So the fundamental goal becomes how do you sort out what you pay attention to and what you disregard? And right now that has, that has infected every aspect of deep learning as the core of what you, the technologies that you have in chat GPT, uh, all the transformer architectures, things like that. It's all centered around this concept that the most important thing is attention. In fact, the revolutionary article that was done a year after Jaudi did his thesis, uh, was, uh, in attention's all you need, right? That's the, that's the famous paper that led to all the stuff going on in natural language and, and the things that we have today. So Jaudi decided to do in 2008, his thesis in this area, uh, he was at Caltech under a Christopher Koch, you know, that's also the university that produced people like Carver Mead that were very dedicated to investigating biologically plausible, uh, models of information processing in the retina. That was Carver Mead, yeah. Koch in, in, uh, the, the nervous system architecture, different kinds of things like that. And so, uh, Jaudi kind of really got himself aligned with the 
very deepest researchers in, in this area. And then he focused, uh, along with the guy at UCLA, I think Alan Yule, um, he, he, uh, he had a lot of interactions there as well. Uh, but his, the focus of his PhD thesis, which took uh, six years to complete, was based on this concept of attention and biologically plausible mechanisms, okay, derived from from analyzing the human nervous system, okay, of how attention is performed in different areas of the brain. Uh, after he did his thesis, he's like, okay, now what do I do? I got to go make money, right? And uh, my thesis is not immediately immediately in the area of an in interest, right? <laughs> yeah. But 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 his timing was pretty good for autonomous vehicles, and, and the general principle of <laughs> you have the advantage of being able to position and mount sensors of all types, all spectrums, all distances, right, all around the vehicle. But you have an overload potentially of inf information that you have to you have to filter through. Yeah. How you do that? Uh, contextually, right, as, as the road uh, uh, situation is changing, uh, as the environment changes, as your task uh, goal changes, right, how do, you, how do you direct and control your attention? So I think the unique thing about Too Simple is that is the core elements of our DNA of our company, okay? This foundation that Jaudi laid in that attention was a key element of solving this problem. And combined with deep learning, what are the ways that we can leverage deep learning models and architectures, right, that leverage this attention principle to an advantage uh, to have a superior processing uh, across all of the available places we could sense, and then how we interpret that and integrate that and drive it in a goal-directed fashion. So really? if you study a lot about neuroscience and neuropsychology, right, one of the things that you'll, you'll come across is that we think we're reacting to information, but we're not. We're, we're parsing, we are literally parsing what we see in a goal and task-oriented fashion with some interrupts that come from peripheral vision and things like that. But generally, we have a task and we are parsing in a strategic way what we encounter with our sensory system to solve that task. Yeah. I. I see what you mean. It's interesting. Winding back to what you said earlier, that you know the, about the human brain, that was a really interesting comment. Twelve watts of power, but we sort of it's a remarkably energy efficient given what it achieves. Because you've got in an autonomous driving system, probably I don't know what a kilowatt of uh, computing five, power. Five thousand watts. Five kilowatts of computing power, and you're not quite able to do what we can do with twelve watts. Now, so we, we have, we have things to learn, right? We, we have things to learn in terms of dimensionality reduction, uh, post-processing of high dimensional data. Uh, there's, there's quite a few things that fundamentally, part of this will be solved once the architecture stabilizes and we can make dedicated processors, right? To saying post-process your LIDAR data, post-process your radar data, post-process your camera data, okay? Um, before it's presented. Uh, to the rest of the pipeline, but to, to get back on uh, on that track, so that that was the kind of the foundation of Too Simple. Took a couple years for the company to kind of get traction, build its first vehicles, and uh, begin begin the kind of road to. I, th I think re things really started to come together in 2018 
when it had some demonstrable technology that was interesting enough to attract some tier one and OEM players to, to pay attention. Okay. Things moved very fast from there uh, and kind of led to the the IPO the company had in a, in a perfectly timed IPO market in the year 2000. Okay. And I joined right at the IPO. I was in the S1 document. You know, I, I had made the decision maybe a month before the, the IPO happened. Right. Right. So good timing again. Yeah, yeah, that that was better timing than pre- previous. I wasn't exactly too late. It wasn't too early. So maybe uh, that that that's how I got here, and and I came to Too Simple to lead uh, the HD Maps uh, d- division uh, of the company. Uh, since then, I've also run operations, test operations, uh, and now I had the whole technology uh, realm uh, for autonomous systems. When you're looking at it, this this the sort of concept of focusing attention. So in your autonomous stack, how do how do you go about doing that? I mean, you've you've got a lot of different sensor inputs. You've got a lot of stuff going on there. But what what do you actually mean when you're saying like your your sort of core principle is focusing the attention? What 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 is that? Okay, so so you have you have two kind of things they're somewhat semantically related but they're different okay one is how does the deep learning architecture have attention mechanisms that focuses how it trains and adapts okay right that that's a core principle that's behind the whole era of transformers encoders and decoders that are that are the current architecture that you have for processing sequences okay so a lot of times when you, when you, a few years ago, when you, when you would do these type of architectures, you would have sensor data and then you would have a convolutional neural network, right? That was the paradigm at the time, right? You would, uh, do object recognition, perhaps some scene decomposition, different kinds of tests like this, right? And then you would have subsequent reasoning that you do to try and fuse these things using a variety of technologies. Sometimes that was fuzzy logic. Sometimes it was rule-based systems, and, uh, uh, there was a variety of different methods that you could use both statistical and non-statistical to do that. In the, in the deep learning, uh, thing, they, in the deep learning era, they, they, uh, or technology around the 2000 plus timeframe, they began starting to process sequences. Okay. Because most things that we encounter are sequences. Okay. Right. Our, our most reasoning that we do, we stash, establish initial track on something. Then we process a sequence of things. That's like anchoring your attention and then following what happens after that. Most of the efforts that were going on in natural language, you clearly have to process a sequence. You have to process the relative uh, relationships of words in a sentence, uh, the relationships of one sentence to a previous sentence. Okay the a group of sentence to a previous chapter, a previous chapter to the original context and information of what the book's related to, things like this. So we're, we're sequence processors, right? And uh, deep learning architectures evolved uh, first for recurrent neural networks, and then they had these things called gated recurrent units and long short-term memory. All of these were, were feedback circuits. So they started having the deep learning architectures feedback into themselves. Okay. Right. And with this, they had a memory mechanism 
And the memory mechanism, kind of like dynamic programming, right, is storing a history, right, of uh, a summary of the history. And, and it allows you to, to process a new input with existing context that you have about that input, okay? The thing, the thing that Too Simple did was it was the, all of this technology was evolving in natural language, but we got on the leading edge very early of reconfiguring how you formulate the input, okay, into this type of architecture for computer vision. And, and that, that was a, a big thing where we shifted from the paradigm of people processing individual images to processing sequences, okay, uh, and streams of, of information, stream kind of stream processing. Um, so, so that was very key. And I think we were very, very early and uniquely differentiated in that regard as a company. Too Simple as a Business is very much focused on the sort of practical, you know, you, you, you are building, um, you, you build vehicles, you're operating vehicles, you're gathering right. that data. What, what's the, the kind of, obviously that, that, in itself, you, you're gaining a lot of data and experience from doing that. What do you see as being the end goal for that? If you kind of pop yourself up and say, what is our purpose? Why, why do we exist? What, what is our reason for living as a company? Okay. Our purpose is to harness the power of artificial intelligence and re base, basically disrupt and innovate and make a better method of tr freight transportation. Okay. Right. But basically that's more reliable, lower cost. Okay. More resilient. Okay. More easily available and works 724. Okay. There, you know, that, that, that's, that's the business thesis. And, uh, by, by the massive lowering co of cost of getting the driver and all of the related support for the drivers out of the equation. Yeah. Okay. Um, there is the potential to go beyond what human capability is in performing this task. Okay. And in many ways we do that right now. Okay. Yeah. So that, that's kind of the, uh, yeah. the, uh, the purpose of the company. Okay. Yeah. Now, if, if you, and, and if you have a vision, yeah. let's, let's project ourselves out 10 years to yeah. 2033, right? Envision 10,000 trucks on the road, hundreds of terminals, uh, all driver out autonomous freight, you know, uh, operating in a coordinated and, uh, efficient manner. Um, OEMs building trucks, okay, that are based on on uh, this technology where it's built for the safety requirements, uh, uses high volume manufacturing techniques, all of that kind of stuff, right? So then, if you pop back and you say, okay, that I got it, that's our purpose, that's our vision, right? What's our mission? Okay, and our mission ha is to catalyze the ecosystem of everybody that's required to do this. Okay, then that's a tough thing. Okay. Right. Because you, you, you have to say, okay, I need to, I need, I'm a tiny company, uh, by, by you know, compared to the industry players, right? Yeah. You've got catalyze the, <laughs> the, uh, uh, tier one ecosystem, making everything from redundant steering and braking systems to <laughs> sensors and, uh, NVIDIA GPUs and all of this stuff, right? You're trying to build a system and at least show the, the capability, okay, right, oh. of, of these parts being brought together for yeah. a new concept. And that we've done an amazing job. Yeah. Okay. 
So you're trying to catalyze this ecosystem around this massive opportunity where this would be almost impossible for most of them to do, okay? But at the end of the day, we, we want other carriers to run freight using our technology, right? We want other people to build the trucks, okay, right? Yeah. We want, we want to focus on the tough task of maintaining, evolving, and growing the capability of the trucks to operate in a larger mm -hmm. uh, operational domain, okay? And perform in, in more, in a safe, increasingly safer manner. Yeah. Uh, learning from all of the experiences of all the deployed trucks to evolve the technology, things like that. So your sort of longer term future, whilst you're sort of building and running truck trials and stuff right today, in the future, you, your sort of business model will be supplying your technology into truck, established truck manufacturers, basically. So, right. so, yeah. so primarily we will be a cloud service based software company. Okay. Right. Right. That, that, that'll be the large essence of it. Okay. And, um, we will, you know, the ultimate income model will be, uh, a revenue per mile, uh, equation. Okay. That you're renting a brain, right. To pilot the vehicle. Do you, do you see the market being all sort of, you know, vehicle OEM and new vehicle stuff, or are you kind of also dealing with the, the ultimate end user as well. So the sort of big, the big kind of end fleets and. So, so the thing, the thing, you know, if you take a, uh, if you think about a, a truck company like JB Hunt, okay. They were formed in 1962, right. They, they, it took for them to evolve the network that they have took, you know, uh, 60 years. Okay. 60 plus years. Okay. Um, it would take us the same amount of time if we try to do that from scratch. So the way to scale is to, is to build the technology in a way that without massively disrupting them, right? Massively disrupting the way they do business today to have this technology be consumed by them in a, in, in a, in a successful way. Okay. And that means certain challenges. Like how do you, when you get to a carrier terminal, how, how do you navigate inside that terminal when there's other people driven trucks? Okay. In, in that environment. And it's not necessarily structured or mappable. <laughs> you end up with these interesting challenges, right? That you have, you have to address one step at a time. So the reason why we do a too simple network first, right? Is we can structure that a little bit better. We can make a structured terminal. Okay. With a landing and launching pad and the various, uh, uh, services that we need for this upfit model of trucks that we have, and then we can do drayage, which is that final, final link to the destination, right? And which, which consumes some of your profits. Okay. Uh, on the run, right? We have a mandatory network we have to do to actually get to the way we can hand stuff off to the carrier. We have to perfect the way the whole system works. It's not just about the autonomous vehicle. It's everything that happens at both ends of the trip. Okay. And everything that supports the trip on the back end during operation. I would imagine that in the last year, couple of years, that the market has kind of tipped on its head in terms of these big operators now having particularly acute problems with labor shortages. Uh, yeah, like UPS. Right? Yeah, so they just can't get the staff. So it's gone from kind of 
people thinking, yeah, this is going to be a nice thing in the future. It'll we can see cost savings. We can see it, it'd be like a nice to have that our business could evolve into that. Whereas I imagine at the moment it's kind of becoming a, oh my goodness, if only we could have this like now, it would solve a lot of headaches. Is is right. the market really? Is it, it has it changed in that kind of way? So if you think about it, you started off your before COVID, you were pushing on a rope, yeah. right? You're basically saying we're going to innovate this stuff. It's going to save you money. Okay, you'll make more profits. Uh, you could price your product lower. Yeah. Okay. Right. That's a promise, but it's a long ways off. It was like, yeah, that's cool, but yeah, you know, we'll have it when it's. Uh... Talk, talk to us in ten years, but we'll <laughs> be real that when you when you finish it. Okay. Right. Then COVID happened. Okay. And and when and there's deep analyses uh, about fundamental flows that we're we're relying on that are not resilient <laughs> to something like that. Mm. Okay. For instance, just-in-time inventory, there's no buffering, okay, of product, okay? Yeah. A buffering is done by the cargo that's in mm. the trailer, okay, in motion, okay, right? <laughs> yeah. The fragility of extreme over-optimization in just-in-time inventory flows, right, like for parts in the auto industry, things like that, right? Uh, we're really exposed uh, by this, okay? Uh, secondly... Uh, you know, in COVID, then you had a driver shortage problem, okay? And it's significant and it's growing. It's continuing to grow, okay? You also have an aging population. So if you look at the the average age of, of a truck driver, it's very similar to agriculture, right? Where it's in the 60s, okay? Right? The average age is in the 60s. You're in, prob- you're, you're in trouble, okay? Unless you have another technology solution, right? Uh, or a way to incentivize people to, to, to get into that into that field, right? It, it's a difficult life. I mean, it, it's trucks are difficult. Hard on your body. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. Seeing, I mean, I, my father was a truck driver, right? And uh, unfortunately, he passed away uh, when he was sixty-seven. Uh, heart condition, uh, heart attack. But he was, you know, he struggled with his weight, um, and that kind of life behind the wheel is very difficult to maintain your health. And you know, I think a lot of a lot of people in that industry are, are in a similar similar situation. It's 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 not an easy, it's it's not an easy job, and it's not a job a lot of um, young people even want to do. Um, so it's it's a really difficult. It's like uh, like at the beginning in the in the late seventies, we were working on spot mm. welding inside a factory robots for spot welding, right? And yeah, you took away some jobs, but were those good jobs? The average person using spot welder had back injuries because the, the the apparatus was very heavy. <laughs> you had to orientate it in a funky way, yeah. right? Then when you hit this the thing, if you didn't have it all lined up right, you got burned with sparks all over your body. Yeah. Right, right. Not all jobs are are, are really yeah. that good. Yeah. It's, well, it's the same. I sort of have this thing with. I mean, the area that I live in uh, when I when I grew up, it was sort of all coal mining, right? And yeah. uh, the coal mining jobs went, but. You know, people get all sentimental about it. But people, did you, you know, wasn't a great job. You know, short, shortened your life expectancy quite significantly. Um, so, yeah, so it's an important, I mean, from a societal perspective, we, you know, there's all these complex drivers um, of the aging population, the shrinking workforce, the special skills, et cetera. Um, and, 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 and the pressure that is creating on, on a lot of sectors it's not just truck drivers that there's a shortage of. There's a shortage of just about everything. <laughs> For, but you've got the ability to solve that problem 
with the kind of technology that Too Simple are, are, are developing. Uh, I don't know if I want to say, I don't even know if I want to say it like this, but I, I'm going to. So be, uh, being realistic, and I, and I kind of hate, oh, I don't know. I will leave that there. Being realistic, how far away do you think it is as a sort of a solution that could be adopted at a scale that's kind of equivalent to the problem? Let's let's pick a target though. Let's let's say ten years from now, ten thousand trucks on the U.S. interstate system from too simple. Let's just envision that. Okay. Okay. Right? Try try to test whether. It's realistic to achieve in the time frame of 10 years, right? So to do that, you kind of have to work your way backwards. You say, what you need is an OEM that took a massive risk, okay, <laughs> right? He committed a ton of money and a ton of NRE and, and, and accepted a massive disruptive change in, in very similar to electric vehicles, right? But more, way more complex, right? And figure out all elements of this from maintenance, man, you know, maintenance stuff, uh, the uh, the ecosystem of parts providers, fuel replaceable unit design of the stuff in the truck, right? You know, ASLD, you know, or, or, or you know, uh, safety certified electronics, right? Uh, so you have to kind of work your way backwards, right? And what is it that they fundamentally need, right? Well, the, the fundamental thing, and I think some of the other AV companies don't get this, and it's it's kind of distorted by the robo-taxi market in, in autonomous, right? Is that you, you know, there, there's kind of one plan that says, you know, you saturate a, a very limited ODD, right? Like you go down in Texas and you focus in the Texas triangle and you say there's a certain volume of trucks flowing on those links, 10 to 30,000 trucks per day on those links, right? We're just going to saturate the, the, uh, that environment and build a, a custom solution for a Texas triangle. No OEM is going to do that. No, no OEM is going to build a truck for the Texas triangle. Okay. If you succeed in an upfit model, you still are not succeeding in your long range plan. Okay. Your long range plan is to get that OEM comfortable enough where they, they feel confident about the whole system of things that they need to do to commit and make that happen at scale. When you do that, you get the high volume manufacturing, which is normally 10,000 units and above, okay, that, that you need for fixtured, you know, printed circuit board and ro roboticized printed circuit board assembly and automated testing and all the, the various things that you need to, to do things. So when we look at it from a strategic perspective, you, you work your way back from 10 years and you say, what, what do they need three years before that, right? What do they need in the seventh year, right? What do they need now? What do they need in three years from now? It's all about getting them to that point where they can commit and coordinate and influence and take the bet with the tier one ecosystem and, and, and also get the timing of the players uh, in the supply chain, okay, aligned and agreed that that timing point is the right timing point. Because if you cannot do that, you, you are, you've got 90% of your equations, but you're still a mechanical liar, which is not really a solution. Okay. Right. You need solid state liar. Right. So that, that's really the, the, the goal that you need to do. And the way we see that is we go from what we're doing right now to, we have to go to an, uh, a, a substantial sized upfit fleet. Okay. 
that operates on a substantial operational ODD, right? Lower half of the United States. That's enough for the OEM. Okay, right? East to West Coast, lower half of the United States, pretty good. Okay, we'll we'll evolve to more uh, challenging weather conditions and terrains and things like that later. Okay, probably with the exact same truck, just software upgrades. Okay, so basically, we need to get to the point from now, maybe in the next two years, right, where you you kind of are stabilizing on what the ecosystem of hardware needs to be. Okay, right? What the partitioning of the system needs to be. Okay, so that you can you can you can figure out how the ecosystem kind of coordinates and and and, and delivers the solution in pieces. Okay, and how they how they fit together, right? Two years from now, we have to have that together, okay? Then once they commit, okay, there's a period of time where we have to build trucks on early early parts, kind of this evolving scenario, right? And build out a fleet to test out a substantial operational do- design domain, okay? Uh, and, and so the, in that phase, I think we have to build a fleet of 100 to 1,000 trucks, Okay, in using the current upfit model, but potentially aligning with a redundant base platform of the truck that has redundant steering and redundant braking. It's quite a significant challenge, I guess. I mean, from from all of that, because the number of the OEMs talk about this kind of technology and and it being in their, you know, their 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 roadmap and things that they're actively working on and you've obviously got the legacy OEMs and then there's one particular company that I'm going to ask you about. Do, do you see the sort of much OEM driven activity that is equivalent to what you're doing? I think, I, I think what's happening right now is a truck industry, it, you know, you, you realize in the, in the truck market, some companies just make a base truck platform and then some other company goes and builds an ambulance, right? Right or a fire truck or or something like that, right? And in doing that, the the manufacturer builds a base platform. They build a chassis. It's got brakes on it. It's got engines. It's got some other stuff. And somebody else builds a cab and all all the other stuff. Okay. The OEM uh, industry is now at the point where they're ready to build that base chassis. Okay. Right. That that's specific to support L four. And meanwhile, they're they're off doing other things that are kind of baby steps towards this, this goal in L2, L2 plus type technologies. The, the, the OEM that's kind of, uh, potentially taking a different approach or, and, and I guess sort of, you could say famously takes a different approach in terms of its autonomous system, but has jumped into the trucking market. And, and I think a lot of that is because of this is, is Tesla. Um, and what, what do you think of what they're doing? So, so the thing, the thing, uh, I'm not going to go, I haven't done detail analysis of, of Tesla's as a customer, but I will say something they have is a business and a technology model that's spot on. And it couldn't have been, it couldn't have been articulated better than by Ford Motor Company CEO recently in a, in a, in a blog post, right? So right now, Ford, if it wants to update software, right, it's got a hundred vendors to talk Okay. Right. You got a hundred, a bunch of ECUs, you got a bunch of stuff and it's like making a change to the software on a vehicle that lasts 10 years. Okay. Right. It it is an absolute nightmare. You got to bring them into the service center, right? You have to have something that you rolled out that does it right. It, 
it, it's a non-winning strategy. And Tesla evolved. They, they managed the entire software for the whole thing themselves. Okay. And actually the processing technology, we have to do that too. So we have to work with the, the, uh, the OEM so that we are that continuous integration, continuous deployment pipeline, right. For the entire software complex, right. That that's on, that that's on the vehicle. And so I think, I think that people who don't get that model will not realize that this is going to be an evolving technology. Okay. Right. If you're an OEM, think about it, right. You're, you're an OEM and you built 10,000 trucks, they're on the road, they're doing their thing. And then all of a sudden you're having crashes that happen, right. In a particular scenario. And you realize there's a deficit. You got to roll out a change. You got to be able to roll out a change and, and like, ideally you can roll out that change as fast as you can, you can get it done. Right. Which lead into our, our discussion on simulation. Yeah. I, it, it is. Um, I mean, one of the things I really, it, 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 possibly the thing that excites me about autonomous technology the most, uh, really is, is not where it starts. It's, it's where it gets to quite quickly in, in that, uh, sort of complex scenarios like driving, you know, if, if when I'm driving or you're driving or, you know, we, something happens, I learn or you learn, you know, but we don't both learn. Uh, unless we have a discussion about it, uh, you know, over a beer, oh, this happened. And Some, sometimes the government learns that this particular type of road uh, intersection causes problems over a common range of people. But when right? you've got a significant fleet of vehicles gathering data continuously and learning, even if you have a problem, uh, the, the, that experience is, is, is stored, like you're saying in the memory and, 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 uh, and shared and the ability to very quickly, um, learn and adapt, you know, and, and it's exponential, isn't it? The more vehicles you put into the fleet. That's, that's correct. It gets safer. Yeah. Phenomenally. And, and the, the, the speed at which that can start to happen you know, it's really exciting. Actually, we start to see that, um, and and uh, and and see what happens with that. Uh, you know, as things develop. So, so right after we did our driver out <laughs> test in early two thousand one, late 2020, two thousand twenty, two thousand twenty one, um, we I kind of led a project uh, for this technology we have called CyberMap. And we realized that part of safety is statistical. Um, let's say you have a truck and it's going down a two lane road and uh, on the highway and it encounters a wide emergency lane vehicle, right? Okay. Which is difficult because now you have to bias in the lane or change into the next lane. You might not have the opportunity to do that. Right. Yeah. And it might lead, that might lead to, uh, uh, you know, the, the necessity to break pretty, pretty heavily yeah. okay, to, to speed, right? Especially if there's, you know, so if you have the first vehicle that encounters that you had a high risk pass, potentially was able to window chase and cut into the next lane, potentially was able to bias sufficiently. Yeah. Maybe it had to slow down. Right. But what if you instantly communicated that to the rest <laughs> of the trucks on the fleet? Okay, yeah. Right. And they're, they're knowledgeable of that emergency lane vehicle to two kilometers before it comes into their perceptual horizon and they move over into the other lane. 
they pass the scenario with zero risk. Yeah. Okay. And that could be 20 subsequent trucks. Okay. So, so there's this kind of information dynamic sharing kind of. Yeah. And we see that a little bit, you know, I mean, there's sort of, again, like famously in for our human brains with ways, like that's the. Yeah. It's the same concept as ways, right? It's just, it's just, uh, and it's kind of interesting. It's like the perception uh, system in one truck is communicating something it saw to the cloud and then the other trucks are, are pulling the cloud and then they get this information that's used in the planning logic, their planning logic. Okay. Right. And maybe their perception system says, okay, I'm going to see something off in the distance. I already have a prior that says you're expecting an emergency lane vehicle. It's on the right side of the road because off at a thousand kilometers beyond, beyond, you cannot tell which side of the road is. Right? Yeah some damage or some debris on the road or I mean even a damaged section of road that then if you hit it too fast it's going to cause damage to the truck and y yeah it, it, the whole thing is and we can have we can have human in the loop uh, for that type of processing as well okay right uh, so in the cyber map system um, you could have uh, you know much more comprehensive deep learning technology discriminate the kind of things that are on the road what, what are they what are these weird objects that we see that we can't train the system in because we don't encounter, we don't, we don't train the system to see refrigerators in the lane. <laughs> right, right, right. But it happens. But have, yeah. right? we, we had a, we had a plane land in front of us on, on one of our trips, right? On, on the highways, right? <laughs> not an everyday experience either. Yeah. So you kind of have, you kind of have that kind of, <laughs> uh, uh, information sharing and learning, which is a social kind of, you know, social learning of the environment. Okay, yeah. an updating environment, right? What we should do actually is go back to because my poor attention distracted us. Let, let's circle back to that. We talked about uh, you know the problems with shortage of drivers, aging driver uh, population. The fact that the job is not that great on the human body, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So you ha you have you know probably less reliable uh, mm -hmm. workforce as a result, different kinds of things like that, and maybe it's just not a great thing for them long term for longevity, right? Yeah. But you also have a you have, you have an opportunity and a problem. Okay, the problem is human attention, right? And the younger people that go into this field are heavily distracted. They're increasingly taught to glitter between many different attention areas dynamically yeah. instead of sustained attention. Okay, and the long range. If you look at the U.S. interstate system, it was designed. We had the opportunity, unlike other countries, right? Brand new country. Okay, let's <laughs> let's figure out a way to build a gigantic interstate that connects everything. It's largely <laughs> long linear segments. <laughs> yeah. For efficiency. Right, right, right. Unless the, the train had something that got in your way, right? <laughs> you just connected up these major things with straight links and then bent them around, you know, mountains and, and, and things like that. That is hard on the human attention system to drive <laughs> in a straight line for 100, 150 miles, 200 miles, let alone 800, you know, 700 miles in one day. So what do you do? You, you, your, your attention varies. But when you have an AI system, it doesn't know better than other than to focus the attention in the way you programmed it yeah. to, 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 to focus its attention, right? So it can maintain really rigorous attention, okay, at all times, okay, in all situations without flitting around and, and getting bored with the current lack of, uh, of uh, entropy or lack of interesting features, right, that are in, yeah. the, in the current scene, right, and, and starting to look at a movie on, uh, on the phone or something. Like, 
it's a huge problem. I mean, that road safety element, I, I, I mean, distracted driving and road safety. So I, I'm not sure on the statistics for the US, but I think in the UK and, and Europe, most fatal road accidents involve a, a truck or a, you know, truck hitting, um, passenger cars and the vast majority of those accidents are caused by distracted drivers, you know, so actually solving that, I mean, it's not just fixing a problem with a labor shortage, you're literally talking about saving lives, you know, and preventing, yeah, horrific injuries and, and loss of life. Uh, normally if, if people who are, it's generally not the guy in the truck that uh, unfortunately loses their life. It's the the person right. in the car that gets squashed by the right. truck. This this is the whole this is the whole risk equation of trucks versus robo taxis. Robo taxis are typically operating thirty five miles an hour and under, okay, and have less than six thousand pounds of mass or five thousand pounds of mass. Right, we're talking about seventy five miles an hour and sometimes eighty thousand pounds of mass. Okay. Right. Yeah, it can do a lot of damage. Um, so your 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 system you have you mentioned earlier that your some of your sort of uh, USP is around how you manage the the way that the system actually sort of filters and pays attention and and I guess dedicates its processing resources to different kind of input streams. How how are you doing? What is it about your system that's special in that area? How how are you doing that? Yeah, it, it's uh, it's largely in the the deep learning architecture. Okay, right. So uh, we use a very very leading edge way of architecting the system. I can't go into this too too much in detail, but um, uh, it borrows it borrows concepts that are used in in modern. A natural language processing systems that you have behind ChatGPT and BERT and things like that. Okay. okay. And it leverages this concept of uh, transformers. Okay. And they have a concept of encoding things into kind of a, uh, so think about yeah. in natural language, right? You could have a sentence. Okay. Sentence says, Paul went to the store, right? In the, in the conventional way of doing uh, neural net processing, right? It's just a bag of words. And you match off of it and you say, what does it mean? Okay. Right. And you would have to match off all co combinations of bags of words and, and do something interesting. The way, the way transformers work is they say, okay, there's something interesting about the sequence and the relationships of the words to one another. Right. So they could say, okay, if I anchor the sentence with the word Paul, okay, what is likely to follow Paul from the other words that we have? Paul to, Paul store, or Paul went? Okay, right? Paul went statistically is much higher closest, right? If you study uh, a vast amount of content, right? Yeah, yeah. You're right, right? So it's, it says that's a focus area. And then you say, now, if you have Paul went, what's the most likely word after that? Paul went store or Paul went to? Okay. Oh, two. Two is probably a lot better or than the or store. The transformer kind of works in this concept of positional encoding, okay? And you can do the same thing when you index content that is in visual media, right? Like patches of, of uh, image. This is sounding very similar to some of the things you did in the past with... Uh... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, so it's, uh, th th those are, those are the basic 
concepts, but the idea that you want to do in, so your, your fundamental objective is dimensionality reduction. You've got, uh, let's say you have a 4k camera, you have, you have millions of pixels. Okay. Right. And, uh, but there's only a couple areas in the image that you're interested in. Okay. That are meaningful to you. Right. And so what you want to do is you want to blur the rest of the image. Right. And you want to focus further processing on the non-blurred stuff because blurred stuff will not be processed. Okay. Right. Right. A lot of it is a task like that of saying, how, how do you blur? And in fact, in the, in old conventional, uh, computer vision with erosion and dilation operators, you were doing the same kind of thing manual. You're learning how to discover what things you blur and what things you, you maintain, uh, information about. Okay. Right. And concentrate on those areas. Right. In, in subsequent stages of processing, right? And then as you go through this, you, you say, I, I, I kind of did this from the raw pixel to the feature representation. Now I'm going to do it to, from feature representation to some uh, additional intermediate layer. And then finally, you end up with a with a, something we call latent space or a, a, a intermediate representation, okay? And uh, in, pro, in technologies like ChatGPT, right? They can study something like natural language and they can study a sentence. Then, you know, they have this, 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 this way of uh, understanding relationships and, and closeness of different th types of things in language. Um, they can then create a way to say, I understand an intermediate representation that is the meaning of the sentence. Okay. And you come up with this intermediate representation, then you have different decoders. So you have an encoder that creates this intermediate representation. Then the decoders could be anything. You could say paint a picture. All went to the storage to paint a picture. Okay. Or you could say, make me a decoder that translates that into French. Okay. Right, right. So you have these different types of uh of uh, decoders, right? And that leads to something we call multitask learning, right? And so th this is kind of a direction in the field, I think, that that we're that we're leaning. And this is where you get to you you'll sort of you 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 have a vision uh, or you, your system has vision, it recognizes that is probably a car, that is probably a truck, I need to be more aware of that, that is a tree, I need to be aware of it, but not so aware. And Right, right. There, there's other stuff that I don't need to pay attention to. And then as your context changes, you know, you shift your attention, right, based on what's optimal for that scenario, right? So you, you have a way of dynamically adjusting what that uh, focus is and and how you how you uh, allocate your attention. Okay, I could probably talk to you all day, and uh, I know, you know you, <laughs> that's not going to happen, uh, unfortunately today. But uh, maybe we'll get the chance of this. It's been absolutely fascinating, Re really, really fascinating. So just to kind of round off, if you like looking forward the next year, uh, maybe a year or two. What are the things that you've got coming um, up that have got you most excited about the next year or two? Okay, so I, I think uh, one of the things is is uh, further leveraging our, our uh, simulation technology, okay, which is something that we originally were going to talk about. Building up this this next generation intermediate fleet that's between between now and um, when we get to, to commercially built OEM trucks, right? That's in the next few years. 
we kind of reduced the size of the company. And in doing so, we had certain advantages of being able to see more clearly adjacent parts of the architecture, the, the actual people. Okay. This is leading to some architectural innovations that make the architecture smaller and more efficient, and more unified, right? That we're very excited about. Okay. And we use that word unified quite a bit. <laughs> yeah. And, and then there's some big challenges that you have that we are going to face and everybody else has to face this challenge as well, which involved domain a- adaptation. Okay. So, uh, deep learning systems, you know, when they perform well, they also tend to overfit to a particular environment. Okay. And the new, the concepts of transfer learning and federated learning and, um, uh, also combined with multitask learning, uh, we, we need to evolve the capability where you don't have a bunch of configurations for different environments, but you have one configuration that, that is generalized across the wide range of the operational design domain. And that, that is the, the, the big challenge that we're, we're looking at. Thank you so much for taking the time out to talk to me today, Robert. It's been, uh, like I said, fa- absolutely fascinating. I wish you, uh, wish you all the best. To people listening, we'll put some links in the show notes so you can uh, find Robert, find Too Simple as a company, and uh, some of the other things that we were talking about in the episode. So um, check out the show notes before. But uh, thank you so much for, for talking to me today. Thank you as well. Take care.